so good to be with you here this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you for your persistent love. Lord, we thank you for this story that we're going to look at here this morning, this sign of Christ and how it teaches us about your good and your gracious character. And God, it teaches us about our deep need for your redemption and restoration. Father, help us by the power of your work, power and the work of your spirit, to understand your word as you would like us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the book of John. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. What an exciting time we are here at GBC and in GBC's history. We are overjoyed and we're thankful for God's provision. And even today, the meeting that we're going to have after the service, uh, we're just so thrilled for how the Lord has been leading and directing and providing for our church. We as a family would like to thank you, Grace Bible Church, for this past year. Uh, It has been so good for us to be here, and God has used you in our lives to uh, remind us of his goodness and his grace, and we're thankful for you. We're thankful for the welcome that we've had, and we just look forward to what's ahead, seeing what the Lord has for us in the days coming. Well, we're going to continue our short series in the book of John that Byron and I are going to be doing while Pastor David is on vacation, and in particular, looking at the signs of Christ and John's portrayal of these signs. We're going to continue this series over the next two weeks after this week. And last week, Pastor Byron started this series and explained the significance of these signs, Why would John focus on signs like these in his book? And we understand that from last week's sign that that John wrote these signs that we would believe and that in believing we would have eternal life. And we talked about the beginning of Christ's ministry, how he turns the water into wine and, and how that symbolism of water to wine is a symbol of Christ bringing redemption to the world. And this week, we're going to be in chapter 5, looking at the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. So John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, a Jewish festival took place. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. In Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there, disabled for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, and he realized that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. 
Now that's, that day was the Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, Pick up your mat and walk, they asked. And the man who was healed did not know who he was, because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And after this... Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus responded to them, My father is still working and I am working also. And this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You know, life is full of things that are broken beyond repair. I mean, we live in this society that if something isn't working right or something's broken, what do we do? We just throw it away. We get rid of it. Today's passage, we encounter this group of people that were regarded as broken beyond repair. They were seen as the lowest of society, not worth anyone's time or, or attention. And in a lot of cases, there was this superstition and suspicion that would surround these people with these disabilities and with these ailments. Society didn't cater to these people. They had no place for people like this. There was no wheelchair accessibility in the temple or the synagogues. There was no AODA training or regulations. And as far as society was concerned, these people would better to be unseen and unheard. And I love this. And what does Jesus do? As soon as he arrives in Jerusalem, he goes to these people. And you'll notice that in your Bible, it will either go right from verse 3 to, right, uh, to uh, verse 5 and skip over verse 4. Or maybe in your Bible you have verse 4, but in both cases there is a footnote explaining why. You see, the reason that, that verse 4 uh, isn't in some translations and that it is in some is that it was, it's not actually in the most accurate original manuscripts of the text. And the best explanation of what's going on with verse 4 is that it was likely a scribe as they were transcribing the original, uh, the original writings of John had put a little bit of a, a marginal note or a commentary explaining what's going on here in the text. So most likely it's not part of John's writing, but still we do get some understanding from what verse 4 tells us. You see, there existed this this superstition that this pool had healing capabilities. It was believed that an angel would come down every once in a while and stir up the water in the pool, and if you were the first person to get into the pool after this stirring had happened, you would be healed of any ailment or any uh, disability or any problem that you had. And so you have this large group of blind, lame, and paralyzed people who would sit around waiting for the water to be stirred in hopes that they would be the first one into the pool. 
But it's important to note that this was strictly superstitious. This is nowhere in the Bible, and they would have no reason to believe that God had created such a pool or that God was allowing an angel to perform such acts. Now in walks Jesus to the setting. Just picture this. All these people, lame, blind, paralyzed, sitting under this this roofed area with the colonnades holding up the roof. All these people sitting there waiting. I mean, it was probably a very sad sight to see. And Jesus steps in. And he doesn't just, he just doesn't talk to everybody, but he, he seeks one person out, this lame man who had been there for 38 years. And this morning, we're going to examine two things we learn about Christ and his grace and his power. We're going to examine that Jesus restores the broken. The first thing is this, Jesus persists with grace. I mean, how true is this? Think of the times that that Jesus persistently pursued you with his grace. Despite where you were or what you did, Christ reaches out with his grace. And he does this to this man in verse 5. And he says to him, look in verse 5. One man was there who was disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and realized he had been laying there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? I mean, at first first glance, this kind of seems like a silly question. The man was sitting by the pool that was supposed to heal him. Of course, this man wants to get well. But I think Jesus intended to do more with this question than just ask the obvious. It's likely that this question is both an inquiry and it is an invitation for the man to examine what he's doing and to ask himself, is this really an effective thing for me to be doing? It also indicates that there's a better way. Do you want to get well? It's almost like a a parent asking a child that's doing something they shouldn't that question. What are you doing? I mean, we know the answer to what they're doing. They're doing something they shouldn't. But we're asking that question because we want them to stop and think about what they're doing. Is what you're doing really the wisest, best thing for you to be doing right now? And what's also interesting is that Jesus pursues this man. He doesn't wait for this man to seek him out. See, this was not part of Christ's usual routine. Usually people would come to Christ and then he would heal them. But in this case, Jesus pursues the man. This man responds to Jesus' question in verse 7, not with a joyful answer, but what we see is we really see this guy complain. Look what he says in verse 7. He says this to Christ's question. Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone gets down ahead of me. See, this man's response to Jesus was more of a complaint, but despite this man's negative answer to the question, Jesus persists with his grace. He could have walked away at that point. I mean, this guy has a hard heart. This guy, he's not a very pleasant person. 
Why would I heal him? But he doesn't. He persists with his grace. He pursues with his grace. We see this in verses 8 to 9. Jesus' response to the man's complaint is this. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. See, Christ's grace continues as he makes the man whole again. He didn't simply just heal this man's ailment, but the text literally means that he made him whole. Jesus made him completely healthy. Jesus spoke this man whole again as he spoke the world into existence in Genesis chapter 1. Colossians 1.16 talks about this. All the man needed was, was this word from Jesus to be healed. He didn't need some superstitious tale or, or some special trick. All he needed was a word from Jesus. Get up and walk. Have you ever noticed that Jesus always has this perfect tone when he talks with people? He always knows what to say and he always knows how to say it. And here we see this displayed. Get up and walk, he says. He graciously says these words to this man with his tone being perfect and his words being healing. You know, we can struggle sometimes with our tone, especially when we're trying to show grace or we're trying to show love to somebody and they're not receiving it. Maybe they're like this guy in this text. They're, they're a little prickly. They're, they're, they're a little bit of a, of a there's, there's a complaint. There's an edge to their response of us trying to show them grace and to try to show them mercy. But here, Jesus continues to persist with this gracious, loving, awesome tone. then we see the hardness of this man continue. See, when the Jews, the Pharisees, approach him in verses 10 and 11, it says this, And so the Jews said to the man who has been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. And he replies, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. He blames it on Jesus. You know, it wasn't me. I'm just doing what I'm told. I mean, that guy who healed me, he's the one that told me to do this. He blames it on Jesus. Then they ask him in verse 12 who this healer is. And of course, this man doesn't know who he is because Jesus has, has slipped away into the crowd. And probably a, probably a smart move on his part he just healed a guy, and he's surrounded by a lot of people that are, that are sick and paralyzed and, and have all these ailments. He probably would have been mobbed if he didn't do it. But here, uh, Christ continues and continues to persist with his grace even further. And he goes and he meets this man in the temple in verse 14. It says this, After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See that you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. And here Jesus is addressing what matters most, and that's this man's spiritual condition, sharing with him such beautiful and gracious words of warning, encouraging him to repent, believe, and be saved, saved from the eternal consequences of sin. And look further. How does this man respond to Christ's 
gracious invitation to repent, believe, to live a life that's different, to turn from where he is. Look how he responds, verse 15. Then the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. He turns around and throws Jesus under the bus. He goes to the Jews and he says, I know who it is and I know where he is and I know where you can find him. See, this man goes out of his way to tell the Jews where Jesus is. And this is a very different response than the man born blind that, that, that we may look at in chapter 9. This healed man born blind defends Jesus in chapter 9. He goes to bat for Jesus, but not this healed lame man. He points Jesus out, perhaps to defend himself from further scrutiny from the religious leaders. Whatever the reason may be, this guy didn't even give Jesus as much of a thank you for what he did. Yet Christ still heals him physically, although we see no evidence of this man's spiritual healing. And what this sign teaches us about Christ's restorative capabilities and grace is this, that our own brokenness and our own hardness is no match for the restorative grace of Jesus. This, there isn't a sin that you or I could commit that would beat his grace. There isn't a situation that, that we face that is outside of his sovereign grace. No person is unfixable or unreachable by the grace of Christ. If he is going to save you, he will. If he is going to take pleasure in you and redeem you, he will. His grace is persistent and totally sufficient. His grace meets brokenness where it's at and asks, do you want to get well? When we come face to face with the grace of Jesus and we repent of our sin, we trust him to save us, we too are changed spiritually. You may be here and You've never been healed spiritually by Christ. You've never come to him, repented of your sins, trusting in him alone to save you. Well, he is asking you now, do you want to get well? He came to die, to be buried, to rise from the dead, to make you spiritually well, to save you. Do you want to get well? There's no theatrics. You can humbly repent and trust him today. The second main thing that we see in this passage is that Christ claims the Sabbath as his. Jesus claims the Sabbath as his. Look with me in verses 16 to 18. And therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. And this is why the Jews began trying to kill him even more. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus would have known exactly what he was doing by showing up and healing this man on the Sabbath. He would have known the kind of reaction that he would have gotten from the religious elite and the opportunity that, that this moment would have even given him to declare his lordship over the Sabbath. 
the Sabbath really being instituted by God, by Jesus himself in Exodus 31 as a physical time of rest for God's people had over time taken on these new regulations added by the religious leaders to protect the Sabbath. They were added to uh, those regulations given by God in Scripture. And eventually, there were 39 series of laws surrounding the Sabbath. Here's just a few, so we can kind of get a glimpse of what's, what's happened here. So one of the laws was, was you couldn't look into a mirror on the Sabbath. The rationale was that if you looked into a mirror on the Sabbath and you saw a gray hair, you might be tempted to pull it out and thus perform work on the Sabbath. Some of us would be, myself included, in front of the mirror for a very long time. The second, uh, the, uh, the other thing that we see too is, is you also could not wear your false teeth on the Sabbath because if they fell out, you would have to pick them up and thus you were performing work. Another law was they debated about a man with a wooden leg. Namely, if his home caught on fire, could he carry his wooden leg out of the house on the Sabbath? Was that allowed? You couldn't spit on the Sabbath. I mean, you could spit, but you had to be careful because if you spit and then your shoe touched the spit and the dirt, you might be uh, deemed as cultivating the ground uh, for growth, therefore performing, uh, performing work on the Sabbath. And you also couldn't use vinegar on the Sabbath to help with a toothache. So in these Pharisees' mind, when this lame man picks up his mat and he is walking on the Sabbath, this guy does the unpardonable sin. They cared little about the healing and more about the fact that this man was told by Jesus to break their imposed laws. When we come across these verses, it's so easy for us to look down at these religious Jews. that They didn't even care that the man was healed. That all they cared about was that he carried his bed and that Jesus healed him on that particular day of the week. And reality is, we can be just like them. Rules can feel safe and cuddly for us. If we follow the list of do's, then God's going to be happy and pleased with us. That's what we call legalism. You see, legalism adds criteria and rules and regulations to the Word of God. It calls people to a standard that God himself doesn't call people to, and it labels it spiritual and good. When people don't meet the standard, legalism looks down its nose at those people. It makes personal preference biblical principle. It takes what's unnecessary and declares it to be necessary. It creates restlessness. It creates a man-centered gospel rather than a Christ-centered one. Legalism also can come in different forms. It can say that we're better than those Christians or those believers over there because we're not as legalistic as them. Or our church is doing better because we do this and, and we don't do that like they do over there. By healing this man on the Sabbath, Jesus is challenging this toxic, legalistic system 
and declaring who the true Lord of the Sabbath is. And by making himself out to be equal with God, he says that he is one with the true authority over the Sabbath, over its purposes, its use, and its limitation. This is also showing that Jesus is talking about more than just physical rest, but he's talking about ultimate, eternal, spiritual Sabbath rest for those who come to him. We see him say these words in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come unto me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Speaking of these words, Sinclair Ferguson says the following, Here to labor and to be heavy laden or burdened are not disqualifications for Christ to, to come. They are reassurances that none is disqualified from coming to him by weakness and unworthiness. Yes, even the disqualified who are weak and helpless are invited to come to him. The Gospels make it clear that it is the disqualified that Jesus delighted to offer himself to. See, and also in this incident, in these verses... We see this moment give birth to the controversy that sets Christ on the trajectory for the cross. They began all the more to kill him. The, those religious, these religious Jews were, were preaching a message of legalism and not of grace, not of the gospel. The presence of Jesus threatened their way of life and their system, their power and their control over one another and over people. It threatened the very kingdom that they had built up for themselves, where their piety gave them all they wanted and more. What we learn from this is that true spiritual rest is only found in Jesus and the eternal promises of the gospel. There's three main things that I just want us to think about after we're done here. Three main things just over the next few moments I just want us to think about. The first thing is this. We are the broken in need of being restored. We are the broken in need of being restored. We are much more like the man in the story than we are like Christ. We seek to fill our lives with things that, that don't work. We uh, look for purpose, significance, and satisfaction in things that won't satisfy. All the while, Jesus is standing there saying, do you want to get well? Also, we are the restored broken who need to show the same compassion and grace to others. Would we notice this man in his sickness and in his hardness and take the trouble to speak to him lying among the pillars, waiting for the waters to move? Would we bother with someone who's living in such vain hope? Someone who perhaps responds negatively to our compassion or help? But you see, we are called to show the same grace and this compassion to others. We're in such a unique stage of life in our church, in this community. There are hurting needs among us here in this room. There are needs among us uh, throughout the community. And what an opportunity we have to show this kind of grace and compassion, not just to one another, 
but to the whole Cambridge community. The third thing is this. We are the lawmakers who need to rest in Christ's accomplished work. We are the lawmakers who need to rest in Christ's accomplished work. His death has become my death. When you repent and trust Christ to save you from your sin, his death becomes your death. His burial has become our burial, and his resurrection has become our resurrection. Therefore, his righteousness has become my righteousness, and I now enjoy the rest that he offers. Yes, circumstances are difficult. Stress builds up in life, and trials come, but I rest in knowing that he has accomplished what I've needed the most. He has accomplished redemption on my behalf. He saved me. He's united me with him. I rest knowing that his gracious eternal care is over me and he has justly declared me to be his. I rest from my legalism, from my list of rules because he has totally fulfilled the law. My obedience to him is a restful place to be because in trusting and obeying Jesus, there is true fulfillment and our new hope of new life in him and our union with him. I rest in my communion with God through his word and prayer in the community we have with one another as we experience God's grace together and through these things as our affections are deeply stirred for him. I rest. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Jesus restores the broken. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. And Father, we thank you for your help. The Lord, we are not alone. Lord, you are with us that our union with you, with, with, with Christ, teaches us that we can rest in your truth and in your grace. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who would show that same truth and that grace, not just to one another, but to people in our community, to those we're coming in contact with, God, we thank you for your persistent grace in our lives. That despite our attitudes at times, despite, Lord, even our hardness or our prickly attitude, Lord, you've persisted with your grace and with your mercy. Lord, I pray for those of us who might be here and we've never trusted Jesus to save us. Uh, we've never experienced this rest. I pray that, Lord, we would come to a saving knowledge of you. Experience what it means to come unto you and for you to give true spiritual rest. For you to restore what's broken. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.